Hey friends, we're so glad that you've joined us here today. My name's Kevin and I'm one of the pastors here at Friends Church in Orange. And whether you're watching this message online or listening to it in your car or on a run or wherever you are today, it's our hope that the words that are shared, that the message of God that is shared in this message will give you hope, life, and encouragement as you seek to live faithfully for Jesus in the midst of your world. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so by going to our website. We'd love to meet you, we'd love to connect with you, and we'd love to serve you in any way we can. Good to see you guys. Everybody got an extra hour. How you feeling? Good. Everybody feels good, right? A little, little bit better. Hey, probably some of you guys already saw this on Sports Center, but I got a quick update for you. Something spectacular happened in the sports world this past week. You need to know that a team anchored by some people right here in the Friends Orange community took home the coveted slow-pitch softball championship for the city of Irvine. You need to see. Look at that crew right there. Right, and some of you... Thank you, Helen. Helen in the back right there at the Next Step Center, you will see all of those fans and signs. There were signs. They tailgated before the championship. I think the other team, you know, it's like they had like two people there and we had like 50. And they're like, what is happening? Like, what are we missing? Uh, but it was really great to be a part of that. So that's just kind of the family. We're, we're here for you. And so we're glad that you guys are here. We say this often, but if it's your first time to Friends Church, you need to know we are honored that you would come and join and hang out with us. There are great churches all around this county. And so we're thrilled that you would choose to come and be with us. As Bob mentioned, we are continuing in a series called Understanding Jesus. And today it's great because we get to talk about love. Right? I love, it's one of the most powerful concepts. It seems so simple, and yet love is incredibly complex and really hard to understand. So for example, um, how many of you love food? Like your foodies, like, ooh, the new restaurants. Some of you, here's what I've learned. Some of you don't just love food. You love to take a picture of food, and you post your food, and then some of you love those pictures. Like you like those, it's fascinating. How many, we love songs, we love movies, we love new TV shows, we love all of these things. I love my wife, right? I love my kids, I love my family. I love, how many of you love your church? You know what I mean? Like trick question, right? Like, should I raise my hand? We love our church, we love God. So it's fascinating, we love our family, we love God, we love our families all the way to we love food. And we use the same word for all of it. And it's easy to understand then why in many ancient cultures, they had lots of different words to pull apart this concept of love so that it would be more clearly understood. But it's interesting, while there's one common word for all of this, we get a sense of what love is not when we look at the world. We know when we go, that's not love. We can see love out there in the world and we, go, we see the tragedies and the evil that just takes lives and takes people and destroys relationships and we go, that's not love. We know it's not loving when people go hungry or don't have a place to live. We say, that's not love. When they don't have families, we go, that's not loving. And it's not just things that we experience in the world. We, we experience things in our own life that we know aren't loving, right? We just go, it's not loving when people betray us. It's not loving when people are hold on to bitterness and resentment and unforgetting. Like, that's not loving. When people leave us, that's not loving. And the same token by we know what love isn't, we also know love when we see it. And there's something that happens when we go, it's just breathtaking when we get to see or experience love. And I got to see that. I was reminded of that just a couple weeks ago. My wife and I, we got to go over to my mom and my dad's house. 
And lots of you know that my mom has been walking with my dad as he's declined with dementia for about the past 16 years. It's been just a remarkably long journey. And he's to the point now where he's just a shell of who he was. He's still present physically, but other than that, he's absolutely absent. And I've watched my mom love and serve him faithfully, faithfully over this time. And so the night was kind of unfolding the way it often does. My dad's just present, but not participating. But for the first time, I got to do something I'd never done before. And my mom said, hey, would, would you help me put dad to bed? And I said, sure. So we wheeled him in the bedroom, and I helped her get him out of his wheelchair. And she's like, here's how we sit him down. And can you help me change his shirt? So we were changing his shirt before bed. And then, okay, you got to turn him here. And she was just so caring and so kind. Be careful. Be gentle. She laid him down, she grabbed his hand, and she was just stroking his head. She started praying, and then she just said, I love you, I'll see you in the morning. You see, we know love when we see it. And today, that's why I'm so glad you guys are here. Because today, as we continue this Understanding Jesus series, we're gonna look at one of the most famous stories where we get to see love the way Jesus sees it. We get to understand love the way Jesus defines it. And it's a story that he tells where he makes it crystal clear on what it looks like and how we can even love one another well in this world. And so I want to invite you guys, if you brought your Bible, grab your Bible and turn back to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. I'll put it on the screen for you too, but there's always Bibles back there in the corner. If you ever need a Bible, feel free to grab one. Luke chapter 10. Verse 25, it says this, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer, right, part of this conversation that Jesus would always have, people would gather around and he stands up and did what lawyers do. He asks a question, right? And he's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He understood you couldn't earn it. He wasn't trying to earn his way, but he's saying, what does it mean? Just sum this whole thing up, Jesus. What does it mean to have this full life that you keep talking about? Not just here, but for all of eternity. What's this fullness of life? And I love what Jesus does because he did what he often does. He asked a question back and he just said, what do you think? What do you believe? Which by the way is exactly the same thing that Jesus still does with you today. Whatever he's going to say to you, he's just going to go, what do you think? What do you believe? And it's fascinating, right? Because then all of a sudden this lawyer, he answers Jesus' question. And I know the 10 o'clock service, you guys, you've been awake for a while. You're one of the sharpest and the brightest. And instantly we started seeing and reading through his answer and you recognized it and went, ah, I know exactly what he's doing. He's reciting a couple of Old Testament passages that anchored the Jewish people. The first one is right out of Deuteronomy chapter six. It's called the Shema, which just means to hear. And it's out of this passage where they said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one one Lord. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. It was this prayer that they would pray at least twice a day that for generations they had prayed this prayer. And so that's what he's saying. And then he couples that with another passage out of Leviticus 19, which is, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so he puts these two things together, and then in verse 28, Jesus says, right, that's it. You've got it. Do this, and you'll live. That's Jesus' response to him. And it would be such a great story if this is where it ended, right? If we could just unpack, what does this mean to love God wholeheartedly with our whole life? What does it mean to love our neighbors yourself? This is fantastic. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. Because look at verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? He wanted to justify his actions is what it says in the New Living Translation. Some of your translations like the NIV say, he wanted to justify himself. I love the message translation of this because it says he was looking for loopholes. He was trying to find a sense of, okay, but wait a second. There's some people that I have to love. I get that, Jesus, but there's some I don't, right? And we understood kind of what this means probably for this man as a Jewish person in that day. You see, most Jewish people in that day had been told that they had to love other Jewish people, but not anyone else. And so that's the assumption we could make about him. So Gentile people, meaning people that are not part of the Jewish heritage or lineage, you never had to love Gentiles, which by the way, would include me and most all of us here today. And not only that, they never had to love Samaritans. Samaritans were the most hated people on the planet that day for Jewish people. They were from a different ethnicity and culture and heritage when the Jewish people were taken into captivity by the Assyrians years earlier. Some of them had intermarried with the Assyrians, so they were seen as traitors. They were seen as half-breeds. They were seen as people that had abandoned their faith and their God. There's no, they had worshiped other gods. They ate differently. They had none of the same customs anymore. They're like, we don't have to love those people, those dirty, horrible Samaritans. And so we know that that's probably his assumption, not those people. I mean, not if they think that way, not if they act that way, not if they believe that way. We don't have to love them, right? I mean, until they clean their act up, until they start making better decisions, until they worship the same God that we worship, like we don't have to love them, right, Jesus? And it's so interesting because when I read passages and stories like these in the Bible, my first instinct oftentimes is just to shake my head and go, I can't believe this guy is asking Jesus this question. It seems so absurd and ridiculous. And yet I start to realize I'm just like this lawyer. And my bet is, if you are honest with yourself, you are too. It's so easy for us to slide into places where we start to categorize people that are worthy of love and people that are not. We start to think there's good neighbors that we should love and then there's bad neighbors that we don't love. And all of us have good neighbors and bad neighbors in our lives and even in our stories. Some of us practically have good neighbors and bad neighbors in our neighborhoods, like places, that our apartments next door in our neighborhood. My wife and I, we have good neighbors and bad neighbors. So we have some neighbors across the street, amazing family. Our kids grew up together. They're like, they bolt out, they listen to worship music. You can hear it coming out of the doors. They have game nights together. They make brownies and the whole neighborhood smells good. And then we have some neighbors that are terrible. Literally right next door to us for years when our kids were young, there were about six guys living in a three-bedroom place that decided they were gonna start a rock band that rehearsed every night at midnight. And so our kids are toddlers and these guys are just rocking out and it was not only, it was terrible and loud. And so we literally are just like, what should we do? I don't know what we're gonna, this went on for months. I'm pretty sure my wife prayed them out of the neighborhood. <laughs> we have good neighbors and bad neighbors, just like you. We have a couple dogs, anybody dog people? 
We got like, we're dog people. We love dogs, big dog, little dog. Our big dog, it's interesting because when the front door gets even just cracked open a little bit, she thinks it's like the Kentucky Derby. And she's like off to the races. And here's why, she just loves to run. But not only does she love to run, she runs to the house at the end of the cul-de-sac because there's a good neighbor there that has given her dog treats every time she's gotten out. And so she's rewarded her for running out of the house. So this is fantastic. At the same time, there's a bad neighbor across the street that literally has left notes in our mailbox saying, would you please keep your dogs inside the house? They're terrifying and terrorizing the neighborhood. And my kids are, yeah, I mean, it's this giant dog. Good neighbors and bad neighbors. We, uh, we got a note from the city a week ago that we left our trash cans out a week too long. And so all of a sudden I'm like, honey, I think we're the bad neighbors. I think the whole city hates us now. You know what I mean? And if you're sitting there going, I don't, I don't think we have a bad neighbor. <laughs> then maybe you should rethink that. Because maybe if you don't know who your bad neighbor is, maybe you should look in the mirror. But... <laughs> Here's the thing, practically speaking, here's, the, here's what's dangerous. We start to categorize people really subtly just like this man did. And we start to think that there are people that are worthy of love and usually it's the people that are easy to love. It's the people that look like us, dress like us, live by us, think like us, worship like us, vote like us. And then there's people unworthy of love. Or people I don't have to love. And it's people that don't look like me and don't think like me. People that don't worship. Maybe in the same place or even the same God. Speak the same languages or even vote the way that I do. And that's what's happening here. And maybe subtly, like I said, today's the first question I think Jesus would ask. Is there a place in your life maybe that you've started doing this? Started subtly categorizing people. Good neighbors, bad neighbors, people worthy of love, people unworthy of love. Because that's what this man is asking. And it's interesting because then Jesus clearly answers the question, who is my neighbor? But he doesn't have a bunch of categorizations. He doesn't have like a checklist, right, that you give them to qualify if they are worthy of your love or not. It's interesting what Jesus does in verse 30. It says, Jesus replied, of course, with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the side of the road. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine, and he bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. That's the story that Jesus tells. And there's something in us, I think, that we go, wow, we kind of get a sense of what love might look like. But you have to understand, this would have been absolutely startling to the people listening to this story in that day. The first listeners, and as people read this, it would be like, <gasps> they would have been gasping. So let me help you understand just a little bit more about what Jesus is describing. So the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
Jerusalem to Jericho is only about 17 miles. It's not very far. Jerusalem sits on a hill about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho sits at an elevation of 800 feet below sea level. So there's a massive decline or incline if you're going to Jerusalem. And this road, right, it's not the 55 freeway. It's not, you know, Chapman Avenue or any of those things. This road would have been on this rocky cliff that's kind of meandering along the side. And so you've got cliffs and rocks and caves on one side and drop-offs and it gets narrow and it gets wide. And sometimes there's big rock. It's a difficult road to travel. And so Jesus is describing this road where all of a sudden there's a man that clearly had been jumped by bandits right? Thieves who hid in the caves to take everything from people. And this man's beaten up, bloody. Literally, the Bible says he's half dead. He's barely breathing on the side of the road. So the first person that comes by, of course, is a pastor, a priest, a guy like me. And he's walking along the road and he sees the guy far enough. It says he saw him, but what did he do? He just tried to like pretend he never saw him. It's like, I'm, what? I don't, even see what, I don't even see what you're talking about over there. It just walks by. And who knows why? Lots of speculation about this story through the years. We understood, right, that priests in that day, literally their job, part of the laws and the rituals and customs depended on cleanliness. And if he would have gotten blood or anything close to anything dirty, he couldn't have even done his job. So maybe he was just trying to protect his job and his people and everything he was doing. We don't know. Maybe he thought... Wow, whatever happened to this guy, maybe they're still hiding. Maybe they're still around. Maybe he was worried for his safety. We don't know. But then we know there was another person who came by, a temple assistant. Some of your translations say a Levite. This is just somebody who, who's a follower of, of Jesus, somebody, church-going person, just like you, in the temple with him that day, walking along. And it says he stopped him. This is fascinating to me. He didn't just see him. It says he walked over and was like, Wow, that's bad. You know what I mean? Like it says he walked over and looked at him and then kept walking. Again, we, I don't know. We don't know why. Maybe he was close enough to see his pastor keep walking and went, well, he did it. So I guess that's what I do. I just keep walking. Maybe he was in a hurry to get home. Maybe he felt totally unequipped to deal with, with a half-dead, naked barely breathing person that was all bloody and broken on the, I don't know, maybe he just thought, I don't, somebody better is equipped to deal with this. We don't know. But what we know is the next person, of course, the Samaritan, the most hated person on the planet to anyone listening to this story in the day, the most unlikely person that you would ever imagine becomes the hero and does what? He doesn't just see and he doesn't stop. He actually takes time to serve this person. And what does he do? He just he probably was overwhelmed too, but he just started using whatever he had. Starts grabbing oil and, and wine and whatever he had, just starts pouring it. And it says he bandaged his wounds. We don't know how. I mean, maybe he just had to tear his own clothes and get him cleaned up. And it's like, oh my gosh, this guy's still alive. So somehow he finds a way to lift this guy up and put him on his donkey. Think about what that would take. I mean, he must have done CrossFit or something. I mean, think, just to lift a human being off the ground onto his donkey, that's a thing. And then he takes him down this road. We don't know if it was a mile or 16, but we know it was a long way and it took a long time. And we know that when he got there, he didn't just leave him there and say, hey, can you take care of this guy? He stayed with him because it says the next day he left. He stayed with him overnight. He took care of him. He made sure he was gonna make it. He covered all of the financial expenses related to it, paid it in advance, said, I'm gonna come back by. And if there's more, I'll take care of it. 
unbelievable what this guy does. So it's interesting because then Jesus tells this story. We get a sense of, wow, what that meant. And then Jesus asked this question in verse 36. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The man replied, obviously the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, that's right. Now go and do the same. It's interesting how Jesus reframes the question. He sort of refocuses the lawyer and he refocuses us. He kind of just holds a mirror up to his life. And essentially what he's saying is, look, instead of worrying so much about everybody else and who's worthy and who isn't, why don't you just look at your own heart and your own life? And instead of asking, who's my neighbor, why don't you ask, what kind of neighbor am I? Instead of asking, who's worthy of my love, why don't you just ask, how loving am I to people? You see, Jesus is saying, stop trying to categorize people. Stop trying to decide who's worthy and who isn't. Stop trying to find excuses and rationalize. Stop looking for loopholes that allow you to walk by people. Find a way to stop. Stop trying to separate loving God from loving others. You can't unhitch those two. To love God is to love others. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's going, it's obvious. Jesus is clearly answering the question, who are we called to love? And the obvious answer is anyone and everyone who's in need. So I know what happens and it's like, well, who's in need? Let me help you. Everyone. We talked that there is a, an entire world that is desperate and hungry and a world full of need. We see it spiritually. We have a spiritually hungry world. We see it manifest all the time because we know that God says, I put eternity into the hearts of every human being. So there's something in us that knows there's something more and there's something bigger and there's something beyond just this physical life that we're experiencing in this world. And so we hunger for it and we try and explain it so many different ways. We try and explain it with astrology. We try and explain it. There's so many articles I read on manifestation. Literally, it's like, put this under your pillow before bed and manifest good things in your life. The world is hungry spiritually. And Jesus is saying, love them. Let them know that there's a creator that loves them and designed them and has great plans for them. The world's hungry. The world's hungry emotionally. We know, we talk about all the time. Anybody stressed? Anybody anxious? Anybody losing sleep? There's a whole thing. My wife and I, yesterday on the news, we saw that there's like a, you know, coronavirus, like insomnia, you know, coronasomnia, they're calling, because people can't sleep. Like there's so much anxiety, there's so much loneliness, there's so much pain. And we know that it's dominant. Like 60% of young moms would identify as feeling alone. It's even higher for the next generation. I feel terribly for college students, young adults. It's like 70% or more. They're the most connected people on the planet and feel totally alone. Love them. There's a need. Relationally, we know there's so much desperation and pain that gets introduced that we introduce into our relationships through betrayal or abuse or hurt or anger or violence. We know those things. Jesus is saying, love people. Love one another well. We see this over, and physical needs. There's a lack of resources in this county. We know that. We see it. We drive and walk by homelessness every single day. We care in this place and at five other sites around this city. 
for youth and children that live at or below the poverty line. Jesus is saying, love them. Stop asking questions. Stop trying to qualify and quantify and categorize. Just love people regardless. Regardless of what they think. Regardless of what they believe. Regardless of where they worship. Regardless of their ethnicity or their culture or their background. Regardless of how they vote. Just love them. And Jesus tells us what love looks like in this story. He says love sees people. Love stops and love actually serves The person in front of me must be mine to love. Clearly what he's saying is that love is sacrificial action. It's interesting in verse 37, right? Jesus says, he gets it right. Well, who's the one who, you know, who's the neighbor? He's like, well, the one who showed mercy. He's like, that's right. And then he says, go and do that. Go do something. Don't go think something. Don't go pray something. Don't go feel, go and do something. You see, here's what's startling is that it's possible, right, to see a need and still not be loving. It's possible, right, to actually even stop or to have a conversation with someone and still not be loving. It's possible to pray for people and still not be loving because love is sacrificial action. It's moving towards the problem. Biblical love is sacrificial action. It sees, it stops, it serves, it binds wounds, it cares, it heals, it lifts, it takes time, it stays with people, it gives resources. Love does things. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the invitation. And how is this possible? Why would we even think about doing this? Because it's what Jesus did for us. See, God, before you ever even knew he existed, he saw you. And he saw you in all of your humanity, all of your worst decisions, all of your biggest regrets, all of your most terrible and horrific failures. God saw those. And you know what he did? He came close. And he came close in the presence and the person of Jesus to give his life, to take on all of that pain, to take on all of that shame, to take on the punishment for all those things, to actually close the distance. He did something. He saw you when you were bruised and bloody and broken and half dead. And he already made a way relationally. That's the gift of Jesus. That's what he's saying. So how in the world do we do this? Well, we already read it and we get a clue in verse 33. It says, When he saw the man, he felt compassion. We have to believe that the needs that God puts in front of us are the needs that he wants us to move towards with love. Because everyone knows love when you see it. And I was reminded of this this past week, not just with my mom, but with my oldest son, Cade. Lots of you guys know my... My two sons, they get to go to college. They get to play football together. They had a week off last week. Well, they had a a game off. And so they drove home for like 30 hours, two states away, finished up on Thursday, like at three and like, let's drive home. They got home like two in the morning on Friday, right? The whole house is awake now. We're bad neighbors. Like the whole neighborhood's awake at two in the morning. And all of a sudden, just talking to them, we're wide awake now. And my son Kate's like, dad, I got to tell you a story. You won't believe what happened. I'm like, what happened? He's like, well, a couple days ago, I was going to Wingstop. I'm walking in, and the guy stops me. And he said, hey, can you buy me some wings? And I look, and I could tell he was homeless. I just disheveled, tired. You could see the bags under his eyes. Hadn't slept in so long. His hair was all grown out. And he said, sure, I'll buy you some wings. 
came out, gave him his wings, and Cade went over and sat down, and the guy followed him and just sat down and said, can I sit with you? Cade's like, well, sure, I get, you did, so I guess we're sitting together now. <laughs> and he's like, what's your deal? You a college student? He's like, yep. He's like, you a football player or something? He's like, yeah. What position? You quarterback? No, I'm a wide receiver. He goes, hmm, man, I'd hurt you. He's like, you would? He's like, yeah, I played football. It's like, you did? He's like, yeah, I was a defensive back, linebacker. We just got to talking, come to find out he'd played at Savannah State School back in Georgia. Got to know each other a little bit. Kate said, maybe I'll see you around. Buy you some wings next week. Cade looked him up on the internet. Sure enough, he had played football there, got his name. He was only three years older than Cade. Three years ago. Living in the same opportunities that my son is. You see, the needs that God puts right in front of you are your needs. And there is a world of need that's right in front of us. And there's a room full of good Samaritans. I want you to hear about a couple of them specifically. My wife, Holiday, who leads not just really our family, but our family as a church into this, has a couple of great stories. There was a little boy named Eddie. He grew up here in Orange County, and he was born into chaos. A dad who passed away when he was young and a mom riddled with addiction issues. He remembers the first time playing with Legos was at the shelter he was brought to when he was removed from his home for abuse when he was just four years old. He remembers the colorful blocks and the ways that they connected, and he hungered for this type of connection. He remembers feeling so cold, hungry, and alone. He was placed in a few foster homes, removed, and then placed into group homes, removed, and in and out of different homes his whole life. Eddie loved playing sports. He was a good athlete, but he never was able to play on a real team. He dreamt of making the high school team, but when he was 14, he went to the tryouts. He saw the kids with all the gear. Eddie never owned baseball bats, gloves, soccer cleats, or any sports equipment. The kids all knew how to throw a ball, kick a goal. They probably had private coaches since they were eight. I'm sure they played on little leagues, AYSO and such. He was humiliated to try out without any technique, let alone any gear. So he gave up on that dream, went to classes, and tried his best to get through high school until he dropped out when he was 17. It's hard to feel connected when you're living in poverty in Orange County. When he turned 18, he had to leave the foster care facility, as every 18-year-old does when they age out of the system, and he found himself on the streets of Orange. This boy, who's now a young man, was living in and out of shelters and found himself eating at the Resource Center, offering free hot meals on Struck Avenue, called the Hub Resource Center. There, Eddie met, met a woman named Lee. Lee attends this church. She saw Eddie, got to know him, and offered him her amazing smile. Back to Eddie. Eddie takes showers at the shelter and does his laundry and Lee works to deliver the meals. Through conversation with Lee and through other volunteers from this church, they got to know Eddie and found out he was looking for a job. He lost his job during COVID when restaurants closed and things got really hard for for Eddie from there. But he was desperate to get a job and become a waiter. 
Volunteers helped Eddie create a resume and apply at BJ's Pizza and Pasta Restaurant. And with much joy, everyone celebrated when Eddie got the job. With joy and elation, Lee and many other volunteers felt that they got the job with him. However, there were a few things that Eddie was worried about. Eddie didn't have the right equipment once again. He felt like that teenager wanting to try out for the high school team without the correct stuff. You see, BJ's Pizza Shop requires black pants, black shoes, black belt, a black tie, and a black button-down shirt just to start. Eddie was embarrassed to ask. The volunteers noticed this and heard about Eddie's situation, and they sprung into action. What Eddie didn't know is that this homeless center was connected to a thrift store funded by this church called Full Circle. Some of you donate your clothes and items there, and your church allows it to stay in business. And this is Lee's favorite part of her job volunteering. She loves getting to know each person and finding ways to meet their needs. Each person at the shelter who needs anything, Lee is writing it down and excited to find that special item at Full Circle when she's there. While Eddie was sitting, waiting for a shower that day, volunteers called Full Circle, and two volunteers from Full Circle picked out not one, but two black pairs of pants, two black ties, two belts, two black button-down shirts, and two black pairs of shoes, all Eddie's perfect size, and brand new socks and undergarments. When Eddie came out of the shower, the volunteers were there ready to celebrate. With bags filled with neatly folded items, excited about his new job, the volunteers from Full Circle congratulated him and told him they had to meet the new waiter. Eddie couldn't speak. How could they have known? With tears in his eyes, he met them with no words, only disbelief. He'd never met this type of care, this type of unconditional love. How could it happen so fast? Not only did Eddie get the job, but he also got into permanent housing. And actually, just last week, Eddie came back to the Hub Resource Center and shared that BJ's asked him to apply for a corporate position. I want to tell you another story about an amazing woman named Veronica and a volunteer named Maddie. Veronica is a single mother of four boys, four of the most amazing boys, three in elementary school and one toddler. These boys live with Veronica in a homeless shelter here in Orange. Veronica loves her boys so much. To be able to stay in the homeless shelter and provide for her boys, she had to work the night shift. The night shift is the only option for a single mother with no childcare and a need to work an eight-hour shift. She would work all night, then take her boys to school and then pick them up from school, help them with their homework, and tuck them in bed while she worked all night again. Homeless shelters don't allow you to stay in the shelter during the day, so she would do all this while in her car at random parks until they were allowed back in the shelter so she could tuck them in bed and head to work. Homework with four boys in a car, trying to find snacks and rest after school, you can imagine how tired she was. You can imagine how tired you would be. No sleep, worrying about your kids in the shelter while you're at work, racing back to get them in the early morning so they could get to school on time while you drop them off at school and then try to get some rest in a car with a toddler in tow. She had no rest, but she felt like she had no options. She had no place for her kids to go after school, so she had to be the, pick, the one to pick them up. 
not enough time for a day shift. So she continued to work the night shift until she heard about the youth centers of Orange. Free after-school care with a walking program that picks them up from school and keeps them safe until 7 p.m.? She wasn't sure it was real. It felt too good to be true. So she visited, and she could bring, found out she could bring her voice the very next day. She was overwhelmed. One of the volunteers at the Youth Centers of Orange happens to be a nursing student at Biola who heard about the Youth Centers of Orange while attending church here. Her name is Maddie. She asked her supervisors in the nursing department if the Youth Centers of Orange could be a site for Biola students in her program to get their hours for clinical work. Biola approved the Youth Centers as a site, and the fall of this year, many students followed Maddie to the Youth Centers of Orange to volunteer and get their clinical hours working with kids. What Maddie didn't know is that this year would be the hardest year to get staff and volunteers that the world has faced, and especially for the Youth Centers of Orange. They have such a huge rise in need for kids to have a safe place for after-school care, and a huge decrease in consistent staff and volunteers make it almost impossible on some days to keep their doors open for kids. What Maddie didn't know is by asking her professors and inviting her classmates to come to the youth centers, it would be a miracle. Miraculously, there were days that without Maddie and her fellow students, the youth centers could not have stayed open. It was truly allowing kids to continue to come. Sometimes, good Samaritans have no idea that their willingness to say yes and lean in causes miracles to happen. But back to Veronica. The boys have been thriving at the Youth Centers of Orange. They love it here. Veronica was able to get her shift changed to a day shift right away. And within four months, she and her boys are now in permanent housing. The family can rest at night, relax in the morning, do their homework at an actual desk, not in a car, have a place to come home to and a place to call home. And every day, Monday through Friday, this church houses one of the sites for the Youth Centers of Orange. It offers free after-school care to any family living below the poverty line. There are good Samaritans here every day playing handball, games, and reading with kids and changing lives. And that is what is so fun about following Jesus, is that we get to be the Good Samaritans. You are the Good Samaritans. And I know some of you are thinking, no, I'm not. I'm not a Good Samaritan, but I want to tell you something. I actually know you are because I know who your dad is. He's the same dad I have. He designed you. He made you to be Good Samaritans with your compassionate hearts and with your amazing mercy. That is why you give generously, so that others can generously live. And it's quite simple to do this. And Kyle's going to share the way that we're doing this. Thanks, Annie. Um, Yeah, on the chair next to you, or maybe you're sitting on it, there's a little thing that just says boxes of love. I invite you to grab a hold of that. And really, this is a season that we launch together as a family for the next month where we get to love our community in very real and very tangible ways. This is the invitation and the pathway for you to love. And we're going to love in two different ways. We're going to serve and we're going to give. And one of the ways you can serve, you can see there's a calendar, lots of opportunities for you to serve with your time. 
whether you can serve at the resource center and serve guys like Eddie, you can come and serve the youth centers. We're going to have opportunities to package different gifts as boxes of love, but we want you to invite you to come into contact and meet the people like Eddie, the families like Veronica and her kids. And the second thing we're going to do is we're going to give. We want to invite you to give to be part of this. We have a goal of serving practically over 500 individuals in our community. 300 of them uh, are kids that live at or below the poverty line and are part of our youth center system or are part of the foster care system here in Orange. The other 200 are people just like Eddie, people that are looking for love and an opportunity and the resources just to take their next step. We know that to be able to provide this for 500 people, it's about $50 a person, right? Some gifts are a little less, some are a little more, but it's about $50 a person. And for those of you math majors and business people and accountants doing math in your head, Brandon, I see you right now, you're going, that's about $25,000. Yes, it is. And here's the other thing that happens. When I say it's about 50 bucks a person, I know that for some of you go, oh, that's no problem. I can do that. I know for some of you that number sounds terrifying because maybe the whole economy and inflation, maybe you haven't worked in the last two or three years. Maybe you're a college student just trying to get through college. And that's okay. I want you to know that for some of you, you just need to move the decimal point over. Instead of 50 bucks, give $5. Just play, just participate. You get to say, I did that. I loved someone uniquely and differently. Some of you, you need to move the decimal point the other direction. For some of you, 50 bucks is a little easy. Maybe it needs to be 500. Maybe it needs to be 5,000. But that's the way together, collectively, that we as a family can help love and serve our community. So I want to invite you guys, if you would, just to pray with me as we close. Father, thank you, first and foremost, for your love for us, that you tangibly saw us in our brokenness, in our woundedness, when we were half dead because of our sin and the damage that we had created for our own lives, and even in this world around us, thank you that you saw us there and you came close. Thank you that you served us, that you loved us, that you continue to heal and bind up wounds. And I pray that you're doing that even this morning. And thank you that because of your love, God, you invite us to love other people around us, to be the good Samaritans, to actually take your unconditional love into this world around us that's desperate and hungry to see you because we know that people, when they see love, they know it. And so I pray that you would continue to stir in every one of our hearts this morning as we listen to you, as we follow you, Give us a humility and a courage just to do our part as we serve and we give and we love people. 